Amen. You can be seated. I'm turning this morning to the seventh chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter number seven. And this morning we're going to begin dealing with the subject or the topic, if you will, of Melchizedek or Melchizedek, a true type of Christ. Uh, Like so many of these chapters in Hebrews, each one of these um, is filled with uh, various uh, important, not only principles and truths, but when we get to this, we also are now arriving at what the writer of Hebrews had been talking about back at the end of chapter number five, when he had reminded the people that they were dull of hearing. You'll recall that part of what they were dull of hearing regarding was the teachings of the principles of what Melchizedek was to teach them. They were failing to understand the importance of Melchizedek and his purpose uh, in this particular section. Now, we saw in Hebrews 5 verses 10 through 11 that the writer introduced the name Melchizedek and simply said that Christ was made a high priest after the same order as Melchizedek. Uh, Remember, the writer had added to that particular statement that he had much to say, uh, but they were not able to handle it. They were not in a state of mind or a place to be able to receive that great truth. And we saw how he urged them to go on in their uh, understanding and their knowledge and their attainments. We've We've covered the topics of not returning uh, to Judaism, but to push away from the shadows and towards the substance, which, of course, is Christ. Uh, He reminded them to hold fast to their faith, not to to turn away from the faith which they knew, and to hope unto the end. Uh, He reminded them uh, that God's faithful, his covenants will uh, be completed, they will be fulfilled. So he now in chapter 7 returns back to the subject that has been the overriding theme of the entirety of these chapters. In chapter 5, 6, and 7 is really dealing with the high priesthood of Christ. And his object here in chapter 7 is really to show that Christ is in fact superior to all of the Jewish high priests. And it's for that purpose. It's for that very purpose that he now institutes what's called a comparison between the priesthood of Jesus Christ and Melchizedek. So really, he sets what the argument is going to be about. If you'll notice with me there in verse number one, we won't uh, read a large portion of this today, as I, I'm firmly convinced it's going to take us a couple weeks at least, but we're going to look at this, this, these introductory verses. It says there in verse one of Hebrews 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness and after that also king of salem which is king of peace without father without mother without descent having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like unto the son of god abideth a priest continually now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, 
have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Now these first 10 verses are loaded with the importance of this man by the name of Melchizedek. We understand that this is important because we see this name mentioned or referenced in Hebrews 5.6, Hebrews 5.10, Hebrews 6.20, Hebrews 7.17, and Hebrews 7.21. This name Melchizedek matters. It is an important distinction and a contrast and a comparison that's being made between the priesthood of Christ and the priesthood of this most mysterious man. This Melchizedek, as he is named, uh, you'll recall at the very beginning of this study, when we started in Hebrews, not Hebrews chapter 5, 6, or 7, but all the way back in Hebrews chapter 1 when we introduced this back in the summertime, I made mention that the purpose of Hebrews as an overriding, overarching theme was to declare the superiority of Jesus Christ. And that, in fact, is what has happened all the way through the first six chapters. We're seeing that Christ is, in fact, superior. He is superior to whom? He is superior above all the prophets. He is superior above all the angels. He is superior over Moses. In fact, he is superior over all. And yet, we have an entire chapter now that is dedicated to the study or the understanding of this mysterious individual by the name of Melchizedek. In this particular chapter, Christ's priesthood is now being compared first to Melchizedek, but also in contrast with the priesthood of Aaron. So what's being proven here is that Christ's priesthood is not only greater than Melchizedek's, but it's also greater than Aaron's. But there's a similarity between Melchizedek and Christ that is not found when compared to the Levitical priesthood of what would have been Aaron. So Melchizedek is declared in this chapter as being a better type of Christ priesthood than that of Aaron or his sons. So the first thing we're going to deal with this morning is really kind of some background on who this individual is. Now, I've got these under headings, but I'll tell you at the start, these headings are extra long, all right? So they're descriptive headings. So we, you may not get the entirety of them, but I will try to repeat them because I'm going to try to put this at least in some orderly fashion here so we'll understand. Uh, we do see in these first 10 verses, and this is really is this main heading, uh, we see that the writer draws from the exalted rank or the exalted position of Melchizedek. And the fact that he draws from that is he shows that even the ancestor, 
the ancestor of the entire Jewish priesthood, who is Abraham, even Abraham acknowledges Melchizedek as being superior. And he renders or gives tribute or tithes to him. Now that's a mouthful. But it's important to understand because there's a superiority that's being shown here that even the superior Abraham, which the Jews would fully understand what we're talking about here, because when they thought about Abraham, they thought about, now this is this is our descendant. This is our, these are the generations in which we have, we've come from. Abraham, in fact, to the Jew, was a great hero. Melchizedek is placed above even Abraham. He's placed above him, and here it's a person that's being placed above Abraham who we know very little about. As a matter of fact, if we ask ourselves the question, who is Melchizedek, we see in those first two verses about a bit of a description of who he is. But the other place that we see, one of the other places, was in Psalm 110 when we read for our call to worship this morning. We see the reference being made, and we'll go back to that in just a little while. But there's also a reference made to Melchizedek all the way back in Genesis 14. So if you'll take your Bibles and go all the way back to the 14th chapter of Genesis, we're going to start to put together the pieces here of who this Melchizedek is, uh, where he comes from, and maybe even look a little bit as to why we know so little about him. Genesis 14, beginning there in verse number 18. It tells us, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. So we see this man who's mentioned by the name of Melchizedek. We see that he is called the King of Salem there in verse 18. In our text in Hebrews 7, he is referred to as the, not only the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, but he's also referred to as the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Now that along with what Paul writes, you take Psalm 110 and Genesis 14 and take what uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews, if it is in fact Paul, which again, we're not dogmatic about that, but if it's Paul, if it's not Paul, the writer is telling us all we know about this man. We know very little about who he is. He's called the king of righteousness, and he's called the king of peace, and he's identified as the priest of the most high God. Now, when we see names and we see descriptions with those names, this is very instructive to us. It's instructive to us because it gives us an idea of the identity or the characteristics of this person. That person is referred to as being the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Righteousness comes first, peace then comes afterwards. So we understand that this man is identified by that name, which indicates king of righteousness, king of peace. So there is some instruction into his name. Now, notice back in Hebrews 7, 
It identifies what we just read in Genesis 14, that he was the priest of the Most High God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, part of that blessing was a result of Abraham giving a tenth part of the spoils. In other words, the Bible calls it a tithe. Ten percent of the, of the spoil of, that, of the battle was given to, to Melchizedek. So Abraham saw him as a superior in that he gave him a tenth. He gave him the tithes. Now, I know we, we often talk and hear about tithes in church, and we hear about what that means, that that's, you give 10% of your income. Tithing in Scripture even refers to 10, 10% of all the spoils that were taken in a battle. Abraham, it says, gave a tenth to this man, Melchizedek. It says there in verse 2 of Hebrews 7, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation, and then we see the king of righteousness and the king of peace. It gets more interesting because we know he's called the priest of the high God, but we cannot find a genealogy on this man. Verse 3 tells us, without father. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't have a father somewhere, but we don't know who he is. He's not identified in scripture. Without mother. We don't know who his mother is. Without descent, that means we have no idea the genealogy, where he came from. Now, believe it or not, genealogies in Scripture are very, very important. All those begats that we skip over actually matter deeply. So when you start saying, oh, that's just the chapters about genealogy, that's just the chapters about who begat who, that really doesn't matter. It does matter, especially in the case when you can't find one. This man does not have a genealogy. You can't go back and find the line. You can't find where he has his beginnings. You can't find not only a mother, not only a father, but notice what it says, neither beginning of days. Not only do we not know his genealogy, we have no idea when he's, how old he was. We have no idea when he began. And on the flip side of that, we also don't even know when his life ended. There's some mystery to this, right? No father, no mother, no descent. No birth date, no death date. That's what makes up the entirety of a life, right? All of us, in some way, shape, or form, it varies, of course, how much we know, but we all have a father and a mother. We may or may not know them, but we, we, we can identify, we understand it, no descent. We have an idea. We're not told anything about this man. And so that adds to the mystery and the, instruction, the instructive aspect of this. But he is compared to and is given, look what it says in verse, at the end of verse 3, but made like unto the Son of God abideth a priest continually. This is an extremely important <clears throat> statement. We don't know all those other things. We only know that he was made like the Lord Jesus Christ with a continual priesthood that had no interruption. Now, Christ's priesthood is what's being compared here, and we're going to see that. Now, there are people in Genesis that take Genesis 14 and 18, and again, this is not the purpose of, of today. There are people who say in Genesis 14, 18, when it speaks about the bread and the wine, they do take that to be that that was an appearance of Christ himself uh, because there's a reference being made to the bread and wine that's present at the Lord's table. Now, we could talk about that later. We could have a theological discussion about whether or not that was a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ, but that's not the intent of this for today. But that's where we see it. We see it in Genesis 14. But the main point is, 
That's what the Hebrew writer is saying, is that his priesthood, Melchizedek's priesthood, was made like the Lord Jesus Christ's priesthood. Not like Aaron's. Christ's priesthood was like Melchizedek's. Melchizedek's was like the Lord's, not like Aaron's. In other words, it was continual. And it was eternal. Christ's priesthood is a continual priesthood, just like Melchizedek's is declared by Scripture to be. Melchizedek, we're told later on in Hebrews 10, or even Christ's priesthood rather, in Hebrews 10, about the length of his priesthood, Hebrews 10 verses 11 and 12, tell us about this. It says, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So Christ's priesthood is superior to Aaron's. He lives eternally. Christ is said to have been of the order of Melchizedek. So the writer is inferring something here. The writer is inferring that Christ's priesthood was superior to the Jewish priesthood, and so was Melchizedek's. Superiority is the theme. Now think about this for a moment. We're introduced to this man, Melchizedek. He simply just almost flashes across the screen. He flashes across the page. And yet, so little do we know, and yet our Lord is identified and compared with this man. You know, we often think about the heroes of the Bible that we know the most about, and we think, well, we know so much about these individuals. These must be really the people we focus our time, and we want to really know who they are. But yet... Melchizedek is identified as a type, as a true type of Christ. And those characteristics, without mother, without father, no beginning, no end. We have these pictures of how we see how that is Christ as well. So Melchizedek, we see him in Scripture. We don't know about his descent. We don't know about his genealogy. We don't know even the day of his death. We only know he's identified as a priest of the Most High God. And the silence about him is actually significant. It's instructive. It's instructive because he's made like unto. Like unto the Son of God, verse 3 says, who abideth a priest continually. Now how great was this man? He was great enough that Abraham gave a tenth part of the spoil. Abraham gave a tenth part. Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, a man we know very, very little about. If Abraham, who is called the friend of God, Abraham, who is called father of the faithful, paid tribute to Melchizedek, how great must this man Melchizedek have been? Yet we know so little about him. And Melchizedek is said to be made like unto the Son of God who abideth the priest continually. Now verses 4 through 10, really the writer now goes on to show the greatness of Melchizedek. And when we get to verse number 7, we'll talk more about that. That's the key to this. But look again at verse 4. Now consider how great this man was. That's Melchizedek. Unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, 
who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Now think about this for a moment. The writer, under the inspiration of the Spirit, asks us to consider how great this man was. A man that we know so little about. You know, we, we often measure the greatness of a man by what he does. We measure the greatness of a person by their accomplishments. Oftentimes, the greatness of a man is measured by who they are, where they come from. The greatness of a man is often measured after their death. But here he says, consider the greatness of this man. He was so great that Abraham paid tribute to him. Abraham, who is the father of many nations, who is the ancestor of the entire Jewish priesthood, as I read from that heading, acknowledged even Melchizedek was superior to him and paid tribute to him. The writer is showing that in the greatness of Melchizedek, again, the key verse is going to be verse number 7, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Now think about that verse for a moment. The less is blessed of the better. The Bible tells us back in Genesis 14 and even here in Hebrews 7 that Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. Abraham is declared to be the less, the better is declared to be Melchizedek. You can see the comparisons happening here. So we see the significance of the greatness. Verse number 5 and 6 go on in chapter number 7 to tell us about the sons of Levi who received the office of the priesthood, talking about the Levitical priest that we're so familiar with in the Old Testament. Taking that with verse 7, which says that the lesser person is always blessed by the greater persons, the sons of Levi were appointed priests, and they received tithes and gifts from the descendants of Abraham. Now remember, the Levitical priests, without going into too much detail, also represented Israel as priests before God. And as a result of them representing, they blessed Israel. But this tells us that even Levi, who were the priests before God, the Levitical priests, actually paid tithes and were blessed by Melchizedek. Again, the priesthood is what's at the heart of all this. Not only Israel... But Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek and paid tithes to him. Now understand that the Levitical priesthood, what's being said here, as good and as instructive as the Levitical priesthood was, it could not accurately portray the priesthood of Christ and his eternal priesthood. In other words, if I want to understand Christ's priesthood, I don't look at the line of Aaron. I look at Melchizedek. That's how I'm going to learn about who Christ is. His priesthood. Okay, there's a lot of, we're talking a lot today, but think about that for a moment. They were very, very familiar with the Levitical priests. They were very, very familiar with what the Levitical priests did. They were very familiar with Abraham. And in their eyes and their minds, these are the superior Levitical priests and Abraham. The writer of Hebrews is saying, no, superiority is found in Melchizedek because even Abraham and the Levitical priests paid tribute to him. They gave a tenth to him, indicating superiority. Again, back to verse number 7, tells us the less is blessed of the better. Now remember, we're going somewhere with this because he's using this to compare it and show us Christ priesthood. 
So God sends forth Melchizedek to give us, specifically, a more accurate type of our Lord's priesthood. If I want to understand the priesthood of Christ, I don't look at the Levitical priests. I look at Melchizedek. That is where the key to unlocking this entire chapter comes from. Because if we don't understand that, we're not going to understand anything that he writes from this this verse on. This is important because Abraham was less than Melchizedek. Now that's contrary to a lot of times we think. Again, remember, he was talking and writing to Jewish Christians who were tempted. Remember, don't lose the context. They were tempted to go back to the old ways of Judaism. They were tempted to go back even to think about the Levitical priesthood. And he says, you're not ready to receive this yet. To declare someone superior to Abraham was actually quite a statement. But Abraham was less than Melchizedek. Abraham, now don't miss this, Abraham could not bless Melchizedek. Only Melchizedek could bless Abraham. Does everybody see the key to that? There was in no way Abraham could provide a blessing to Melchizedek. Only Melchizedek could provide the blessing. Again, thinking about this as the accurate portrayal of Christ. Is it possible for you and I to bless God or to bless Christ in any way? No. It's the other way around. Only Christ can bless. We can't bless him in the fact that we can add to or give. We can't change. So the farther greater here is we see that because Melchizedek could not be blessed by Abraham, how great was he? How far greater must the Lord be if Melchizedek is just a type? Drop down to verses 8. Through ten, And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So the old priesthood, the Levitical and the priesthood of Aaron paid homage or reverence to the Melchizedek priesthood not the other way around. The Melchizedek priesthood was not paying reverence or paying spoils or paying tithes to the Levitical. The Levitical was paying tithes to Melchizedek. That more and less is really what matters here. In verses 11 through 19, now the writer shows us that perfection, and this is where we're going, could not arise out of the Levitical priesthood. And that a priesthood that introduced a perfect state must be superior. So if we're going to introduce perfection, if we're going to introduce that which is perfect, which is Christ, then it has to be superior. If you're going to introduce perfection, then you have to have perfection. The Levitical priesthood was not perfection. Okay, does everybody see that? that? I can't find perfection in the Levitical priesthood. Again, he's trying to draw them again away from the shadows, trying to get them to the substance that that is in Christ. So look at verse 11. If therefore perfection 
were by the Levitical priesthood. In other words, if the Levitical priesthood could have done what was being set forth as the goal, then it would have stopped with the Levitical priesthood. That's where we would look today and we would say, if I want to see the priesthood of Christ, all I have to do is look at the Levitical priesthood. That's what the exposition is. I would say, if I want to know Christ's priesthood, I just look at the Levites. But you'll notice what he says. If perfection were by that Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek? If the Levitical priesthood did what it was, we think it, think it did or think it does, then that's where it would stop. If we think that's it, then that's perfection. But the writer says that's not perfection. As a matter of fact, it's not even it's not perfection. That's not where I want you to look if you want to see the priesthood of Christ. If you want to see Christ as a priest, you've got to look at Melchizedek, not the Levitical priest. Yet those Levitical priests were showing a lot. They were showing us shadows. But that's not where we're going to primarily see Christ. And not be called after the order of Aaron. Notice it's a question. He's asking a question, if that was the case. So if a perfect fellowship with God and a perfect justification from sin could be found in the Levitical priesthood with all of its ceremonial law and all of its sacrifices, because it's under the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood is where the ceremonial laws were ordained and established, right? If that was it, again, remember the context, we don't want you to go back to that because that's not an accurate picture of who Christ is. But if that was where he wanted us to look, then we never would have been introduced to Melchizedek. We never would have been told about a man we know so little about if the Levitical priesthood had accomplished what it, they think it was supposed to accomplish. Why would it be necessary to bring in another and different kind of priest after the order of Melchizedek rather than just after the order of one tribe Judah, one order, or one rank of Aaron. Which, when we read Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4, here's, we'll get to that, but notice you want to turn there. It says, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereof thereunto perfect. For then... Would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Every year in the Levitical priesthood, in that order, in that rank, every single year, there was a sacrifice brought and that sacrifice had to be repeated every single year because it did not accomplish or, or complete perfection. It won't do it today either. It won't do it today. You could bring a thousand perfect sacrifices and it will not bring justification. You could bring a 95% a, a, a obedience to the law and it wouldn't bring perfection. You can't bring 100% of the law because it's impossible for a sinner to actually hold 100%. Christ had to do that. 
So he's saying that that salvation, that justification, that deliverance from the law that you're looking for, you're not going to find that in the Levitical order. But instead, I want you to look to Melchizedek. And I want you to look at what's happening here. Now you notice, verse 12, for the priesthood, now this is key, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So we read in Psalm 110, here's what it said, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Which, again, proves to us that the priests of the order of Levi were not sufficient. Means there's still a greater priesthood needed. So if there's a change in the priesthood, all right, to get this, if the priesthood has to change, if it has to be different, then there also has to be a change in the law concerning that same priesthood. If the priesthood changes, then there has to be a change in the law. That tells us that that was a clear indication that the ceremonial law, and here comes, here comes some controversy, the ceremonial law is there, in fact, abolished. That ceremony that was showing all these pictures and bringing those things in, in Hebrews 10, 9, it says, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. That's a reference to the Levitical sacrifices and establish the second, which is Christ's obedience that he offered to God. So if you're going you're to take away, but it's going to be replaced by the obedience that Christ is going to provide. That's a direct reference to that. So the law of the priesthood alters the person of the priest. In other words, the character of the priest changes and the very office of the priest also has to change. It's, no, it's not the same. Now, how do we know that's what he's talking about? Again, that's why verse by verse matters because this continues to unfold right before our eyes. Verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. That which is perfect comes from another tribe. A tribe that was never the high priest of the Levitical order. Does everybody see that? It's... it's it's somebody who's not even appeared there in the sense of the Levitical priesthood. Doesn't come out of that line. Doesn't come out of that directly. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. The priest came out of the Levi line, not out of the line of Judah. Yet Jesus Christ is described as the great high priest the change in the priesthood has led to now a change in the person who is the person of perfection, which is found in Christ. The high priest was not ever from the tribe of Judah. He was from the line of the Levitical priests. 
So when you see this happening, one of the very things that's being said here in verses 13 and 14 is the reality that of all these things that are being said, Jesus Christ himself, the great high priest of what's going to be referred to later as a better covenant, did not even belong to the priestly line, but rather, the Bible says, but rather he comes out of the tribe of Judah. No member of the tribe of Judah ever officiated at the altar. So, what's that maybe tell us about Melchizedek? He's made like unto the Son of God. Does it change? Now, according to the belief of the Jewish people themselves, here's what the Jewish people themselves even understood. And this is what makes what happens with them today and their blindness and refusal and rejection of Christ even more alarming is that it's evident that the Jewish people, they expected the Messiah to come from the tribe of Judah. Yet, none of the house of David or of the tribe of Judah ever presumed to present themselves as priests of the order of God. None of them ever said, we're a high priest of the order of God. Yet they understood that their Messiah was going to come out of the line of Judah. So there was an entire change that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. The priesthood changed and the law of the priest changed. The old Levitical law, go on with me, verse 15, and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. It doesn't say out of this order or the rank of the Levitical priest, but it says out of the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who is made... Watch this, not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Now the writer quotes Psalm 110. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's evident from the scripture here that the fact that the Levitical priesthood was never intended to effectually and completely put sin away. That means nothing in the Levitical priesthood was ever intended to be the effectual means in dealing with people's sins. Now, if you don't see the ramifications of that, right there, that just blew up every workspace salvation on the planet. It just blew it up. Because it was never intended to save the way that the order of the priesthood of Jesus Christ is going to be. The power of an endless life. What do we know about Melchizedek? We don't know his date of death. That's how he's similar to that's how he was similar. An endless life. We don't have the time. We don't have the date. Yet this mystery continues to go on. That the Levitical priest could never put away sin. But the presence of another priest who bears the likeness of Melchizedek, not Aaron, but Melchizedek, is where this man would arise from. Notice it says it's not based on the carnal ordinances, but what is it based on? The power of an endless life. That means that what changed is now it was dependent upon not carnal man-made ordinances, but on the deity of the person. The only claim of an endless life is found in deity. It's found in God Himself. 
That means this new priest, this priesthood that he's talking about, had to be by a person who, have, who has eternality. Deity. The effectual sacrifice of Christ shows us that there was a remarkable and distinct change in the law regarding the priesthood. How do we know that? Verse 18, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weaknesses and unprofitableness thereof. The old law of the ceremony, the old Levitical law as they had been seen, had witnessed, has now become disannulled. It's weak, and what does it say? Unprofitable. Look, profitability means it provides gain. Unprofitable means it gives nothing. What is it saying about the old priesthood? It's become weak and unprofitable. But he doesn't leave us without hope. He says, yet there is something better that's now being ushered in. Now get this, here's what's being ushered in. A greater and endless and undying priesthood. That means it's not going to change. It's not going to be different. And by the way, we'll see in a moment, it's not going to be transferable. In other words, no one else is going to be able to claim what this priest can claim. Because you know what he can claim? The power of an endless life. Do you know what all the high priests in the Levitical priesthood could not do? They couldn't guarantee an endless life because they died. It wasn't the same priest for all those years. As a matter of fact, if you just do, if you just do a quick account and try to even figure it out, and I couldn't even figure this out. This is just a roundabout estimate. But if you take that with even some of the writings of, the, of, of Jewish history, they have determined that there were at least 83 high priests who served in regular succession from Aaron to the death of Phineas. And the last high priest being mentioned of is mentioned at the siege of Jerusalem. So what was happening? One was coming after the other. One came on the scene, died. Another one came on the scene, and died one died. Another one came on the scene. Succession and what was happening? It was what's called a transferable priesthood. You were the high priest last year, but you died. So guess who's the priest now? A new priest now is the high priest. Guess what doesn't happen with Christ's priesthood? He doesn't die. I don't have to worry about next year whether or not Christ's priesthood is effectual to deal with my sin. If He saves me today, the same Christ is going to save a person next year and the year after that and the year after that and for however many years until Christ comes back to get His bride. I don't have to wonder, is there a new priest this year? And not only that, I don't have to worry about a sacrifice being made every single year to make me right with God. Because Christ, as my high priest, is at the right hand of God the Father, ever living to make intercession for me. Not just to answer my prayers, His blood pleads for me. His blood. Not the lamb, not the goat, not the bull. Folks, this is glorious stuff. Because I don't have to sit and wonder, are my sins atoned for? Because the great high priest, we're told, entered once and laid down his life once. 
And no matter what false doctrine you hear out there, he is not coming again to lay down his life again. He's not shedding any more blood. When he comes again, he's coming to get his bride. And he's coming to get me, and I hope he's coming to get you. I can't speak for you. I can't say he's coming to get you for sure. The Bible doesn't teach universal salvation that teaches everybody as long as they're a person is going to go to heaven. No, you have to have repented and believed on Christ alone. Not the Levitical priest, not your good works, not the blood of goats, not the blood of bulls, not your baptism, not your church attendance. It is all through Christ. And if it's not Christ, you have nothing. Now again, the definition of Christ, sadly, in our day and age has to be defined. People's view of Christ is not what makes him Christ. It's what the Bible says and declares that Christ is. The old law of the ceremony, the sacrifice, the earthly priesthood, folks, we've heard this phrase. I don't mean to be cute by this, but there's this idea of canceling culture. Well, guess what? That old priesthood, that old ceremony, that old sacrifice, canceled. doesn't matter how many bulls and lambs you bring isn't a single one of them taking you to the lord not a single one it didn't make people perfect at the time it doesn't make them perfect now if it made them perfect when the sacrifice was offered once a year why they have to keep coming back every year and why did the book of why does the chapter say and a conscience of sin they had to keep dealing with it over and over and over again because it was not an effectual sacrifice. Again, in Hebrews 10, all this foreshadowing, verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies, remember we're going towards perfection, be made his footstool. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever, what's the next word? them that are sanctified. My perfection is found in this man. I'm not looking for my perfection in the Levitical priesthood in any way, shape, or form, nor am I looking for perfection in the works that I do or don't do. And if you're looking for him in those works that you do, it's unprofitable and weak. It'll never get you to heaven. It'll never get you closer to God. It's not going to keep you in Christ. I'm only in Christ because of what He did. Not making salvation possible, but His cross accomplished my salvation. At the cross of Calvary, He saved me. He didn't make it possible. He actually saved me. My testimony isn't what I do, what I said. My testimony is Jesus Christ saved me. He has an endless life, an eternal, unchangeable life priesthood all the levitical priesthood did was pointing us to something better even the apostle paul in his epistles deals with that that the law had a purpose he's not saying do away with the law but he's telling them listen the law proves you can't keep it and the moment you think you can keep it you commit spiritual arrogance it's impossible for you to keep the law but Paul said that also means I don't just ignore it. 
Remember, he goes in Romans 7 and says, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do are the things I don't. And he said, there's this constant struggle. Paul never stood up one day and said, hey, you want to see the perfection of a law keeper? Here I am. If anything, he was reminding you, if you want to see what not being able to keep the law looks like, look at me. So when you start believing falsely that you can keep the law, I'm just going to tell you to get your Bibles and read all the epistles of Paul and see if you ever declare himself to be perfect. Not a single time does Paul ever say he's perfect. He said he has perfect righteousness through Christ, but he's not perfect. Next week, we'll pick up with what goes on because now what's starting to happen as we continue to move through this, this disannulling tells us in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. It is through that rising up that we now have a better hope. We have a secure hope. And we're going to deal with how we know that this is set in stone is because something else took place with Christ's priesthood that didn't take place with the Levitical priesthood. And it may not seem significant, it may not seem important right now, but it deals with the importance of an oath. That oath is really what sets this last section of Hebrews 7 in motion and solidifies what is all going on here with this covenant. So I hope next week, as we look, I would encourage you, read ahead. Read the end of the chapter. Read down from verse 19 to the end of 28. Study, meditate upon this. Study like the Bereans. Go home and see if these things are so. Don't take my word for this. Don't take it as everything I said is right. Go study for yourself and see if you come to the same conclusion. Scripture clearly points to us that Melchizedek was this true type of Christ. And through Christ, we have this better hope. I hope this will encourage and strengthen us this morning. Let's pray and then we'll sing a closing hymn together. Father, we thank you for this hour. We thank you for the time that we've had in your word. And Lord, we know there is so much more that needs to be said. This chapter isn't through. It's not finished. But Lord, we rejoice in what we've already heard. We rejoice in the knowledge that's been put before us. I pray that our faith would be strengthened. I pray that this better hope that is spoken of would so resonate in our hearts as the Spirit applies it to us that we would leave here today rejoicing in the better priest that is found in Jesus Christ. Father, if there is anyone here today who's trusting in anything or anyone other than Christ Jesus, I pray today that they would be brought to repentance, they'd be brought to an understanding that there's nothing they can do, there's nothing they can say, there's no offering they can bring that would allow them to draw nigh unto you. All that they can claim for access is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Father, thank you for the instruction that we find in the word. And may this, may this just settle us. May it, may it secure us that we don't, we don't struggle in our life with where our salvation and where our assurance comes from. Father, we thank you for not only this day, but the days that are coming. And we look forward to the day when all the saints from every age, from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, are one day surrounding the throne of our Lord. 
And we're singing eternal worship. We're singing in a way that is now, it's, it is, it's not stained by sin. We see Jesus Christ as he is. And as the Bible says, we will be like him. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. Let's stand if you would.